excited to have you. We're going to go to Matthew 4, verses 12 through 19. Then we're going to jump back to Isaiah 9, 1 through 4. Matthew 4, verses 12 through 19. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulon and Nephthalim. That is, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon and the land of, Nephthalim, the land of Nephthalim by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in the darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region in the shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now jumping back to Isaiah 9, 1 through 4. This is what it says. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephthalah. And afterward he did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations, that the people walked in darkness have seen a great light that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They set before thee according to the joy and harvest and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, and is in the day of Midian. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for your word. We praise you for the gospel and the good news of Jesus, that the light came and it shone brightly and transformed and changed the history of mankind. We're thankful for you and the new covenant. And I just pray, God, you'd anoint this word today and help our pastor as he brings it forth. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. It's good to see everybody here. Give the Lord one more praise offering. Would you do that? Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated this morning. Usually I preach a Christmas message, and yet this is kind of a Christmas message, and you, I've always done that for 30-some years, but the Lord's kind of led me in a little bit of a different way today, especially we're going to be doing a candlelight service here in just a few moments. But here within our text, we see that the Bible says that Jesus left Nazareth, and he went into Capernaum, or into Galilee, and he dwelt within Capernaum. Capernaum was upon the upper sea coast in the border, according to scripture, of Zebulun and Nephthalim. Christ dwelling in Capernaum was actually the fulfillment of prophecy. The event that took place in Matthew chapter 4 that we read earlier was prophesied by Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 9. So Christ leaving Nazareth and going into Galilee, into Capernaum, was a fulfillment of the prophecy itself. Look at our text one more time in verse 13 and 14. And it says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast, in the borders of Zebulun and Nephthalim, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. I love to talk about prophecy, but that's not my message this morning. Galilee was divided into what we call the upper and the lower Galilee. The upper Galilee was called the Galilee. 
Galilee of the Gentiles by the sea because it was mainly occupied by Gentiles. It was in the neighborhood of Tyre and Sidon. And the using of the word Gentiles denotes all those who are not Jews. That's what the word Gentile means. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. But but in, in this scripture, it's not only referring of non-Jews, but it's also suggesting and referring to the Gentiles to be heathens or to be pagans. Capernaum was known for its trade due to it being by the city of the sea and there was uh, it was a fishing village. It was known for its water, its ships, its fish, and its fishermen. It had a population of about 1,500 people at its highest point within all of history. And even though the upper part of Galilee was populated by the Gentiles, yet Capernaum was where the biggest population of the Jews were at. And this is why that Jesus chose that small village to live in because he first came, as we know, to the Jewish nation. Jesus came unto his own, and the own, his own received him not. But nevertheless, he chose Capernaum also because it was near an important road that led to Damascus, and it was a place to meet and influence people. There was a lot of people coming in and going out, coming in and going out on the road to Damascus to Capernaum, and it would be there in that center hub that Jesus wanted to minister to the masses and to the multitude of mixed people. Capernaum also had a population of a mixed race of people, which made it a very dangerous place back in those days. And it created what they called multiple mixed cultures. How many know that there can be cultural clashes? Mixed races a lot of times don't get along. Cultures don't get along. It was a very, very wicked and dark place. There was a lot of prejudices in the village and a lot of the mixed people races that caused this great conflict to happen. Capernaum is mentioned more than 50 times in the New Testament, making it the most mentioned city other than that of Jerusalem. The nearest city was Tiberias, which was a much larger city, and that's where you would have thought Jesus would have started his ministry, but Jesus chose not to dwell there because Herod the Antipas had begun to rule there and persecuted the followers of Christ, and he was the one that literally murdered and beheaded John the Baptist. A matter of fact, in our text, Matthew starts out by saying in verse 12, now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into the prison, he, he departed into Galilee. Now this was not because Jesus was afraid of suffering. It wasn't because he was afraid of Herod. It wasn't because he was afraid of dying. But the Bible tells us that he left because his time to die was not yet come. He knew that he had a ministry to fulfill before he would go by the way of the cross. Acts 10 and 38 says how that God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost who went around doing good and healing all of the oppressed for that God was with him. So we understand that he had a ministry to fulfill and therefore he went over into Galilee. Now Jesus chose the upper coast of Galilee because it was there where Philip II ruled and Philip did not persecute the Christians or the followers of Jesus at first so it made Jesus 
Jesus, it made it a lot easier for Jesus to move in and around doing his ministry openly where he didn't have to hide. So here's Jesus in Galilee in Capernaum setting up his hub of ministry and it's there that he's beginning to be able to minister freely. The scripture speaks of the land of Zebulun and Nippon to be a place of gross darkness. It did not just say darkness, it said gross darkness. We cannot even imagine what the living conditions was like in that land. It was a land of gross darkness. And even though it was a semi-prosperous place due to its trade, yet there was great spiritual darkness in this village. Prosperity is not always a sign of liberty. Prosperity is not always a sign of righteousness. And prosperity is not always a sign of freedom. You can be prosperous and still be dark in your soul. You can be prosperous and still not have liberty. You can be prosperous and still not have freedom. The prophet said that the people roamed in darkness and he called it himself a region where they sat in the valley of the shadow of death. Look at the scripture one more time in verse 15 and 16 of Matthew 4. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, the people which sat in darkness saw a great light and to them which sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has sprung up. The spiritual climate was due to all of the influx of Gentiles which had no real one religious background but they served many numerous gods and many numerous idols and this brought darkness upon the land. The Gentiles moved into that area, into the northern part due to it being severely ravaged by war when the Assyrians began to invade from the north and when the Assyrians invaded the land was left desolate, it was left empty and it was just open destroyed land and it was here that the Gentiles began to go in and begin to populate that area. They begin to increase it. That's why it's called the, 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 the land of the Gentiles by the sea. The area was the first to suffer the invasion of the Assyrians. They came down from the north and they began to wipe the Zebulun. They began to wipe Niplin and Capernaum and all that area out. And the land that was ravaged, it was war-torn and the people were still living with the effects of the consequences of war in Matthew chapter 4 and there was a great fallout due to that war occurring. It, did you know that it takes years upon years sometimes to rebuild and establish a, a stable society after war? Not only in the physical but also in the spiritual. There are losses in war. There are things that happen that takes time to rebuild. Even spiritual battles, it can wear you down spiritually to where it takes time to rebuild yourself up and to get yourself back in the faith where you need to be. Great darkness was in the land and the Bible says that the people sat in darkness. That's a key word. Notice that it did not say that the people roamed or walked in darkness, but rather they sat in darkness. When you look up that little word, it has a meaning that means that the people had settled. They weren't mobile. They caved into that way of life. There was no hope of change. They just sat there and they began to conform. And that's one of the things that we got to watch out for because I'm going to get ahead of my notes just a little bit, but there's great darkness coming upon our land. The United 
United States of America is not the same nation that I knew when I was a little boy. Things are getting dark. Things are getting bleak, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. But I refuse to just sit back and say there's nothing that I can do about it. There's nothing that I can do to make any kind of change. I want this body to know tonight it's not a time to settle and it's not a time to conform to the culture of this world. It's time to be a counterculture of what's going on. If you believe that, give him praise. Amen. Oh, I'm about to preach now. There was no hope. So they refused to believe that they could change. Hopelessness everywhere. Zebulun and Neplin had been more or less vassal states to a series of Assyrian kings. Both of them eventually were taken into captivity during the end of the kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., leaving the, the place in anguish and contempt. And according to our text in Isaiah chapter 9, according to the prophecy, these people were as pawns of powerful states. Their history was one, going to be a vulnerability, subjection, oppression, and they truly, what was prophesied by Isaiah, that it would be a land of darkness. And for these conquered people, it was a land of brutality, a land of poverty. Many of them were starving, and it was a place of hunger. It was a land without any hope whatsoever. They were conquered. They were a conquered people subject to the whims and the demands of overlords. There were overlords in that region. Every child born could be taken away by a more powerful uh, 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 overlord, and they would take that child, and they would put it into slavery. Every field planted with crops, they would begin to be harvest and the grain would be taken away from the people. Every hope for the future was stolen by these masters who had the final say. And this was truly the land of deep darkness and oppression. How would you like to live like that? Afraid to have children because overlords would come and get them and take them and put them into slavery. How would you like to farm all year and harvest your crops and the next thing you know an overlord's coming and taking your crops for themselves. This was the condition of the land of Zebulun and Neptune. However, in the midst of this world of foreign powers and spiritual wickedness and foreign ways and influences, there comes this shining light among the mixed cultures that was formed and in the midst of obscured darkness, there came a great light. It was the northern tribes that were to, that was the first to suffer from the Assyrian invasion. So we see through God's mercy, they will be the first to see the light of the Messiah. Isn't that wonderful? The ones that was hit the hardest is the one that gets the most grace. And those of you that feel like you're fighting for your life, get ready because there's grace, grace, grace about to appear. The more that you're fought, the greater the victory that you have. And the more of the darkness you experience, the more of the radiant light of Jesus Christ that will be manifested on your behalf. God's not going to leave you hopeless. If you believe that, give God praise here today. Jesus comes and his idea plan is to rescue those that are in gross darkness. You can't get so far away that God can't find you. You can't get so deep in sin that he can't save you. Can I have an amen? It don't matter how dark the situation is. It don't matter how deep and how gross and how, how, uh, how, uh, about how much of an abomination you've been dwelling with. I'm here to tell you that my God can save to the uttermost, to them that cry out to him because he ever liveth to make intercessory for us. There is no place that you find yourself in that God can't bring you out. 
Amen. The once land of darkness, lightly esteemed land, has seen a great light and become a renowned place. It is only through divine agency that this great light shined in their midst. It wasn't due to some great deed that they had done or because of some great wealth that they occurred or due to some human ability or human greatness. It was by divine grace, unmerited favor, that Jesus appeared unto this land. Can you say amen? And can I remind you of something here today? Each and every one of us that's here today, it is his, by his divine grace that we are saved. It was the Apostle Paul that reminded us in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 when he said, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It's not by works lest any man should boast. It isn't by our merit. It isn't by our good morals. It's not by our human intelligence. It's not by our talent that we are saved, but we are saved by grace and grace alone. You and I are saved by the grace of God here this morning. Give God praise for the grace of God. Amen. This blows my mind that God had special blessings upon this land that was known for its darkness, its abomination, and its curse. It was a land that dwelt in the valley of the shadow of death. It was here that God chose the most unlikely to do the most unlikely. This was the place that he healed Simon Peter's mother mother-in-law of a fever. This is also the place that he healed the satyrian servant. It was also the place that Jesus healed the paralyzed man that was lowered down from the rooftop and he began to say, take up your bed and walk. It was the place that Jesus taught in the synagogue and he healed a man that was literally possessed with an unclean spirit. He cast demons out of people in this land. It was a place that he healed the sick man of the palsy on his bed. Light had shined in darkness, but the darkness could not stop it. As dark as it was, it could not stop Jesus for performing his miracles. It could not stop Jesus for his plan to be fulfilled. And I'm here to tell somebody's bound here this morning. There are many that are bound and plagued by darkness. There's been no light for some time now. You're locked up, you're chained up, hope has vanished away, and you're sitting there in the seat of darkness conformed to, to it and just said it's just a way of life. Well, I've got news for you, honey. God knows right where you're at and he's fixing to come to your rescue. Light is fixing to shine in your prison here today. Oh, hallelujah. God loves you. He's not forgotten where you're at. He knows where you're at. This was the place that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9 verse 12 and 13 when the people began to ask him, why in the world are you ministering in this region? Why are you ministering among these heathens? Why are you in this little populated? Won't you go to Jerusalem, the great city of God, the city of David? And they're accusing him, and Jesus says these words. They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what this meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but I have called sinners to repentance. He said, this is why I'm in this region. I'm here to bring them out. I'm here to set them free. 
I'm here to liberate them. Isn't that what he said in Luke chapter 4? For the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He sent me to preach to the captives, the recovering of the sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's why he came. Do we not understand that Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy? He came to bring forth light. That's what John chapter 1 says, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and the and, and, and all things were created by him and without him. There was not anything made, but in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shined in darkness. Can I have an amen? Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem looking for sacrifices to be given to him. He wasn't looking for praise. He wasn't looking for some kind of an animal to be brought sacrificed before him. Jesus was in the region of darkness in the valley of the shadow of death to do his ministry. What an odd place for him to choose. Jesus was in the obscured place, the place that was despised, overlooked, unimportant, and was seen by others as being a shadow of darkness and death. No one dared go there. If they did trade, they would send their servants, they'd do the trading and get out because it was so dangerous. It was so dark. It was not a place to raise a family. It was not a place to build a home. Even though it was by the sea, it was not a place for beachfront property, I'll tell you for sure. And no one wanted to go there because of the gross darkness. This is surely not a place that you would expect to see the Messiah, would you? This was the place that Jesus actually selected to be the center of his public ministry after leaving Nazareth. He did not choose to do his ministry in the Grand Cathedral of Jerusalem. He didn't search out the most glamorous temples in the land and the most glorious places to set up his ministry. He didn't crave the limelight. He didn't seek center stage. He dwelt in the land of darkness, one that was shadowed by death. Matthew 9 and 1, it says this. This is odd. I caught it. It says, and he entered into a ship, passed over, going over to the, over to the sea, into Galilee, and he came into his own city. This is not... Speaking of Bethlehem or Nazareth where he was born, this was speaking of Capernaum. He claimed Capernaum as his own city. That's where the Messiah took up residence. Can you imagine the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great Messiah set his residence in the land of death where there's a shadow of death and stench upon it, where there's gross darkness? That's where Jesus came and set up his residence. Would you think Jesus would even go there? Oh, why would a Messiah go to such a degraded, despised place as Capernaum? This was speaking about how his heart was to reach the lost. This was the place he started his ministry. As a matter of fact, it was his hometown of Matthew, the tax collector that became one of his own disciples. It was in the region where Apostle Peter and Andrew were called in to being a part of the 12. And matter of fact, let's just say it this way so I don't have to read them all. All 12 disciples came from that region and five of them came from the city of Capernaum. Can you imagine that? So what does that tell Look where Jesus Christ picked his team from. You think preachers are going to go down in the ghetto to try to find his ministerial team? Come on now. Is a minister going to go out and look in the region of gross darkness for a team? Come on. 
to become his partners in ministry that would spread the kingdom of God and build the kingdom of God upon earth? Oh, but that's exactly where Jesus went. Jesus picked his team from the valley of the shadow of death, the land of darkness. And let me tell you, God is going to pick people in this earth that is most unlikely to do his most unlikely work. God's fixing to do it again. Did you know God is not just looking in churches for people to spread his kingdom, but there are people out there in gross immorality, gross darkness, their lives are tattered, they're scarred, they're blemished. They're, they're, when they walk into a church, you look at them, you see the worldly consequences upon them, but them are the candidates of becoming some of the greatest apostles and preachers and teachers that has ever been. And when God begins to reach out into the dark places and bring them in to the house of God, it's the responsibility of the house of God to love them and nurture them and not be jealous of them and not be afraid of them. God's about to turn our world upside down. Amen. People torn and coming in scarred and blemish and you see the scars of worldliness all over them. But when God gets done with them, it ain't matter what, what's the appearance on the outside. It's what happens on the inside. Can I have an amen? God began to believe, begin to build his ministry team. The Bible even tells us that the mighty works that were done in Capernaum, if they would have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, that Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented and been still here today. That's how many miracles Jesus performed amongst them. Miracles were performed, supernatural displays of his power was manifested, and the goodness of God was poured out on that region. Did you know that Jesus done more ministry in the northern area of Israel around the Sea of Galilee than any other place? That's odd to me. The land became a glorified place due to the event of the Messiah. The nobodies become somebodies when they met Jesus. <laughs> The nobodies become somebodies when they met Jesus. I was a nobody. I was nothing. But now I'm grafted into the vine. I'm heir of God and a joint heir of Jesus Christ. I'm a son. I have sonship. I'm a child of God because of the grace of God saving me. The land that was once lightly esteemed has now become known due to the special blessings of the Messiah's visitation. Every time God comes by and visits something, he leaves deposits of glory. <laughs> Everywhere he goes, glory just falls off of him. Everywhere he goes, light just falls off of him. Come on, somebody help me preach here today. And did you know I hear the voice of God speaking to me in my intercessory time? Can't get ready because I'm about to make another holy visitation. Come on, somebody help me preach. Hallelujah. Hope has been born in this place. Hopelessness has vanished. Fear has been given away to peace because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Dead places come alive again where Jesus sets up residence because Jesus said in John 14 and 6, I am not only the way and the truth, I am the life. First John 5 and 12, he says, he that hath the Son has life and he that has not the Son does not have life. That's why he said in John 11 and 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. 
Life is in Jesus Christ. Did you know that Jesus can resurrect dead things and cause them to live? Look at Lazarus. Jesus can take torn places and bring them to wholeness. Jesus can, can take afflicted places and mend them back together. Jesus can take poor places and prosper it. Jesus can take bound places and set it free. Jesus can take dark places and make it light again. I don't care where you're at, how bad it is, or what's going on. My God's got the power to change your life radically. He's got the power to transform you. He's got the power to transform a congregation. He's got the power to take a gross, dark place and spring up the light and the hope of the glory risen Son of God upon it. Oh, hallelujah. Dear God, I said I wasn't going to preach hard this morning. A matter of fact, Jesus said in John 8 and 12, I am the light of the world, and whosoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. God reminded me of our coming to Ninth and Cedar, 22 years old, first church, and how that church was desolate, empty, and it is a barren place. Me and my wife were dating, dating, and we went to a revival there back in the 1980s, early 80s, and we sat down in that church. It was a revival. It was a district thing. And some of the people of the district came, and I looked around. There might have been 20 people there that night. And I was sitting there. We come from an aggressive little church at Dudley that was powerful. It was filled up, had great worship, had great music. Things were happening. The pastor was highly revered. Everybody looked to the church as the, their refuge. And here we walk in, and we sit down, and we're dating. And I nudge her, and I said, aren't you glad that me or you will never have to be in a place like this? Not understanding what God had in store for me. We got dating, going down through Poplar Bluff, went over on Pershing Street, driving down the road, and these houses are just set right beside each other. I'm not used to that. I come from a rural area. And I said, aren't you glad we don't have to live like that? The very house that her and me and her moved into. <laughs> God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? But there's just a handful of people there. Matter of fact, it was kind of funny. I ain't going there. It's kind of funny in that little old church in Ninth and Cedar. My wife had attended there without me. We wasn't dating, I don't guess, at the time. Maybe she didn't even know me. I don't know exactly when that happened to her, but the prophecy went out over her and said that she would marry a preacher and have a great ministry and they'd great, do great things. And I thought, in that very church, we were, she was prophesied over in that very church that I said, aren't you glad we don't have to come here? And the very house, I said, aren't you glad we don't have to live? It's the very places God put us. There was but a handful of people. The church building was just completely run down. You walked in the building and went through a little foyer and opened the doors. There was carpet that had been down for 30 years, old green shag carpet. There was sawmill built benches Sister Heidi Shield's husband had made out of the sawmills out there. Old dark paneling. Everything was outdated. The, scenes were, the ceiling was all stained and some of it coming down due to water leaks. And there was only two bathrooms. There was a sanctuary and two bathrooms is all you had. And when you went into the bathrooms, they were caved in because of the water leaks. And, and when you used the restroom, you had to shut a door. And if you was big like me, you couldn't use the bathroom there because it's like a closet. Little bitty things. And uh, that was the condition of the church. Uh, the property was run unkept. 
When we got there, there was weeds higher in my head, car parts everywhere, bottles, cans, baby diapers, trash scattered everywhere. And I thought, God, why are you sending me here? I fought it. I didn't want to come. But God spoke to me and said, that's the place that you're to go. The church had no money in the bank. Every week it was paycheck to paycheck trying to pay the bills. The church was in debt to people all over the, all over the city. There was $18,000 worth of debt on an old two-story house that was falling down. And that $18,000 debt was hanging over our head. And it would take several thousands of dollars just to tear it down and have it move it away if the city would have condemned it. There was no classrooms, no fellowship hall. There wasn't uh, even a chalkboard. No supplies, no literature, no classroom books, no music, no singers, no sign, nothing, absolutely nothing. And the, it had the earmarks of death upon it. It was a place that you would call desolate. It was a place that would say no hope. You might say it had a big, big billboard that had flashing neon lights saying, don't come here, don't come here. This is a graveyard. There's nothing but death at this place. There was nothing to attract people. There was nothing that made it look like the, a place that you would want to belong to. Death was in, imminent and certain, and it's just a matter of time that the doors would be closed. They had tried to sell the place over and over and over and over again, and they couldn't sell it. They had a for sale sign up when I pulled up to be the pastor, and no dabs, no, one take, no takers. And the state overseer called my pastor and said, I want to send Brother Miller to Papa Bluff. What do you think? And he said, well, I think he'll do a good job. And, and he said, yeah, but you, does he, he, don't you realize what, what kind of a, a load that's going to be? And he said, yeah, but he don't know it. That's why he'll be a, have a good job. I was green as a gourd. Didn't know. I didn't foresee all that stuff. If I would have, like the Apostle Paul, when Jesus showed him all the things that he should suffer for his name's sake, I would have bailed out if I would have understood the undertaking that we took on that when we drove up there. But God looked down at the most unlikely spot, done the most unlikely thing with the most unlikely people. What was despised in the city became a testimony to the glory of God. What you see right here today, where you're at, came out of that despised dark place. A place that was certain not to succeed or achieve. A place that had been cursed by the mouths of even preachers. There were preachers right here in this old town that were prophesying to over their pulpits about our death and about that church to close. Well, I got good news. It never closed. It's still very much alive. There have been multiple places like it, just like it, that have closed. There have been foundations dug up of other churches that the only remembrance of them is in the mind of somebody in a distance for, for, for land. Countless church buildings all over southeast Missouri have been abandoned. They've been closed. They've been torn down. Neighborhoods have lost their lighthouses. Country folks have lost their gathering places of worship because churches are closing down everywhere. Darkness and death came upon that little church on Ninth and Cedar. But to, to those that dwelt in the shadow of death, light sprung up. There was a visitation of the glory of God on that place and hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people gave their life to Jesus Christ through that altar at Ninth and Cedar. I'm not exaggerating. Hundreds. Thousands of people come in and out of there. I buried over 500 of them that's died. A whole congregation is scattered out from Ninth and Cedar throughout the various cemeteries of this surrounding area. 
We lost a lot because of jobs where they moved to, they moved to uh, uh, Springfield and Cape and they moved to Tennessee. I get letters and things all the time. You, they, they still say, I still can't find a church like I had. All over the country we got people scattered that's been touched and saved and raised up in the faith because of that little old church. God seemed to say to me, he said it to me this week, I was in anguish about our nation, about the darkness that's creeping in. If you don't see darkness, you're blind. You're already in darkness. Come on. And in anguish, God took me back to the ninth and cedar and showed me and I have just taken the miracles for granted. I have just taken the, the supply of, of resources and the people he brought in and how that God blessed us. Look here today. Look one more time. What you see right here, come out of that church. This is a product of that church. We are that still same church. Can I have an Amen. I have to admit, I was praying and I said something in a doubtful way, I guess, because the Lord locked me up, man. Have you ever been slapped up by the Lord? Pow, that ain't quite right. Come on now. Am I the only one that's ever said something stupid to God? I was praying away and I said, Lord, if this certain thing happens and if this goes through, America's lost forever. There's no returning point. I said, we're fighting for the soul of the nation. God help it. And God just hit me upside the head and he took my memory back to Ninth and Cedar. And then he said, no doubt you're living in some dark, dark, dark times. But he also said to me, but I'm about to do it again. <laughs> ah, you can be that. Stand to your feet and give him praise if you believe it. Ah, come on, the highest praise. He's about to do it again. Huh. Oh. Shout the voice of victory in advance. Yeah. I looked around as China's trying to invade us. And matter of fact, they've found out that they have all kinds of spies of China in our high government. I looked and I heard how Russia hacked our computers and probably China did too and they have, have gained high classified material that is very dangerous for our country. I look at Iran that's trying to get uh, 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 nuke missiles to reach the United States and Russia's supplying them the uranium that comes from America thanks to uh, Hillary Clinton giving them 15% of our uranium to Russia. Lawlessness is in our streets. Justice has fallen. Darkness has been risen upon us. They are literally letting prisoners out of jail while they're putting pre preachers into jail. Come on. Justice has fallen. Fear is gripping America. People are frightened. And yet I hear God saying, what I've done in the past, I'm going to do again. Already, there is revival sparks going on in California of all places. California has been the breeding grounds of iniquity and sin and lawlessness for years upon years upon years. They used to always say when I was a boy, 
If California would fall off into the ocean, it would be a great blessing to the United States. Now, not everybody. Let, now, don't, don't cut my throat. There's good people that live in California. You know what I'm saying. As a whole, California has been a, a stronghold of darkness. Do I have an amen out there? California has been the breeding grounds of lawlessness and iniquity and all of that stuff full of sanctuary cities right now that they've developed that harbor criminals, sex offenders, murderers, and rapists. Yet revival is going to beginning to show up in pockets in that state even as I preach. Many prophets said, keep your eyes upon California for it will be the first state that God visit. And when you see God visit California, it'll be a sign of the beginning of the great awakening in America. That's been prophesied for years. Woo! So do you believe that we're living in the last days? Yes. Do you believe gross darkness is upon the earth? Yes, I do. But I also know that God ain't abandoned us, that we're under covenant with him, not a contract that can be broken. We're under divine covenant. And God, what he promised to our forefathers, he will fulfill. If, even if we remain not faithful, God is faithful. Can I have an amen? There's plenty of grace at the grace of God. California would not be my pick to start revival. I want you to know, but I'm praying for revival in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, every dark hole of America. I'm praying for the radiant light of Jesus Christ to spring up in the land of darkness and those that dwell in the valley of the shadow of death. God's about to deposit his glory again. The most dark places will be the first visitation from the Lord. And I'm praying God send the light all over this country. You remember Isaiah 16, because of time, I'm gonna have to quit, I forget. I'm on a time schedule here today. I hope that I can generalize the rest of this message because we got a lot to preach on. Isaiah 61, when he says, arise and shine for the light has come, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. First of all, he says, arise, don't sit there immobile. Rise up, get up, stand up, do something. Everybody say, well, there's nothing you can do. Oh, yes, the army of the Lord is a mighty force to be reckoned with. Do you hear me? You're a mighty army. And our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds. The anointing breaks the yokes that's upon people. Come on now. They say there's no hope for America. There's hope when the body of Christ lightens up, rises up. Come on, somebody help me preach. There's hope when the army begins to say, hey, we're giant killers. We're sea walkers. Hallelujah. We're deliverers. We're the anointed of God. We are the foretaste of glory divine. Can I have an amen? Isaiah goes on through there and says, you populated this place. I'm paraphrasing. You populated this place, but you could not bring joy. You've tried to build up this obscured place. The place that was desolate, you come and inhabited it. You built upon it. You started businesses in it. You tried to bring life to it, but you didn't succeed. But he says, when I get done with it, it'll be like, it'll be like those that rejoice after harvest. You know what the harpist represents, don't you? The soul's being saved for us. But to them, they would go out and gather the herbs and the grains, and they would bring it in, and they would get their crops and sell it off. And when they did, they would pay their debt. It would get them out of debtness. It got them out of bondage. You know what else they done? When they, when they brought in the herbs and the spices, 
they made what they called the bomb of Gilead. It was a salve. It was an anointing oil. And they made the anointing out of the olive that fell from the olive branch. And they put spices and stuff and made anointing oil to place it upon people. And when people needed healing, they'd come and they'd rub the salve into the womb and it'd bring healing for the nation. And that's why Jeremiah cried out in the time of Zebulun and them. Even he said, he said, why is it? He said, uh, he said, it, we have no doctor here. We, he said, the harvest has come. The bomb is not here. He said, why does happen to the harvest? We are not saved. But I'm here to tell you what God said is when I get done with you, the harvest is going to come in, the anointing's going to fall, and the sweet balm of Gilead's going to show up. Do we have no physicians? He is the great physician. And then he went on and he said, You couldn't bring glory, but the glory's not only going to be like that of, of the herbs and the spices and the grain coming in, it's going to be like that of you being a victor over your enemy, like a victory celebration. Then he talked about how that they would roll the garments of blood that they had killed the oppressors with. They'd roll them up and they'd take the weapons of warfare and the things that would burn and they would pile it in the, in the center street and they'd light it a fire. And when that big old bomb fire took off, it put up a radiant light that declared the nation's got national revival. Oh, but not only that. They'd take them old rags that was blood torn and roll them up and put them on sticks and make torches. And every time someone would light it, they had a torch in their hand signifying individual, individual victory. Come on now. They were firebrands. They had the light of their victors. They said, look, that's, that's a sign. We have conquered. We have conquered. We have conquered. Can I have an Amen. Oh, but don't stop there. It's like a football team winning the Super Bowl. You talking, oh, no, Cowboys, that's a curse word. <laughs> Forgive them, they know not what they do. <laughs> Amen. Boy, I don't even know where I'm at now. People go radically crazy after they win a Super Bowl. Not only the team, but those that sit in the bystands. It's like a baseball team winning the World Series. Instead of drinking champagne, they spurt it all over everybody. Come on. They have some of the greatest rejoicing that there is. Oh, think what it's going to be like when we get the victory through the light of the glorious Son of God that shines upon us. We're not going to be sitting in our seats going through religion as usual. We're not going to be sitting in our seats being full of apathy and sitting there lethargic and cold and indifferent. Oh, when God begins to give us victories, when we begin to see our sons and daughters being born again, when we see the nation having revival, when God begins to pour out his spirit, when you begin to be able to take a torch in your own hand and it lights your soul and say, I have victory. There's going to be a war hoop and a celebration like you've never seen. I probably got 30 scriptures that I could quote about us being the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid. Jesus said no man puts a candle uh, under a bushel, but he takes it out of the, underneath that bushel and puts it on a candlestick to where all of the people in the house can see it. Amen? 
That's what the scripture says. The scripture says that we're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we should show forth the praise of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're not to walk in the darkness, but we are children of light. The children of the day. Darkness should not be upon us. This is what we're going to do in closing. I promise I'd preach about 20 minutes. and I think I went over just a little bit. It's better to get forgiveness than permission. That's a horrible saying, really. I want you to think about it, what God's about to do to this body. Those of you that's got a candle in your hand, get it ready. I want you to dim the lights all over this building. Turn them off. All right, don't turn them on yet. Turn them off, turn them off, turn them off. Is there any way you can turn them off? I guess I'm the limelight. <laughs> Hallelujah. Light shines in darkness and the darkness comprehends it not. Darkness can't stop light. Light's more powerful. Darkness flees from it. God has promised me this promise. I said, Lord, when is those masses going to start coming over those hills that we've seen that vision of? And this place ran over to where they couldn't even get in and they're begging for Bibles. And the Lord said, when my shaking ain't done, it ain't done yet. And he says, and when I touch my people and they become the light that they're supposed to become. Have you ever noticed how everything is drawn to light? Oh, yeah. No one wants to roam in darkness. No one wants to be in gross immorality. People are trapped. They want out and they don't even know how because they're, they're seduced. They're lied to. They're deceived, thinking that they can't come out, that they've went too far, that some of them's craving because of addictions and the addictions is holding them captive. That's all about to change. God spoke to me and he said, I want the palace of praise to become a remnant of light. I want everybody that's from the age of 20 years old and younger, turn on your light. Hold it up. Now we got a lot more than them there, but we only gave one per family. Look at, look at the lights. Look at how many young people we have in our church. Give God praise for that. Isn't that beautiful? Now everybody 21 years old to 35 years old, keep y'all's up. Keep, keep yours on. Everyone 35, or 21 years old to 35 years old, turn on your light and raise it up with these people. Now from those that's 36 years old to 55 years old, lift yours up. Now everybody that's 55 years and older, everybody close your eyes first so you won't see how old they are. Lift them up. Look at that. Do you see how the light just keeps getting brighter?
brighter and brighter and brighter. Every candle here represents a soul that's transformed and saved by the power of God. You are the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid. You have more power than what you think you have. The greatest influence and power upon this earth is not nuclear power, it is spiritual power that comes from the body of Christ. Because every principality and power and ruler of darkness is under our feet because of the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ that is upon our lives. Come on now. You and I can make a difference. Don't sit in your pews and conform to the, to the culture and to the belief system of this world. It's called cosmos in scripture. It's a system and beauty of arrangement of the world. It's enticing, it sounds right. Don't, don't be, do not be brainwashed by news, by commentators. You can think for yourself. Somebody help me preach right there. Don't believe everything you hear on television as to be absolute truth. Whose report is the palace of praise going to believe? We're going to believe the report of the Lord that says I'm healed, that says I'm forgiven, that says I'm free, that says I am a child of God. Amen? I want you to stand with me all over the building. Those of you got lights and lamps, hold them up high. Oh, my goodness. We are the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill. I just want you to understand who you are this morning. And the more lights that we get, the more radiant that light becomes and the more powerful the witness and the testimony is. Every candle is a testimony to the Lordship of Jesus Christ saying, I'm a victor. I have taken the spoils of the enemy. I have wrapped them in a torch. I have set them on fire to raise up to say, I am a triumphant child of God. It's your testimony here today. That candle is your testimony. You have spooled and whipped the enemy. You know what I love about this? When the children of Israel crossed over, began to take the land, they couldn't take the first city because that was a tithe unto the Lord and those that done it, they were cursed. You can see that in Jericho. But the next nine cities, God would say, okay, take the spoil and divide it among you. Isn't that powerful? You know what kind of celebration it is that when they would conquer a city, then they would take the spoils, the silver, the gold, and begin to give it to the people? You know what kind of rejoicing went? With that candle in your hand represents Jesus Christ stripping your enemy of all power and giving you victory and triumph over him. That's what that candle represents. Before I go to the next stage, I want you to just give the Lord praise for giving you the victory. Amen. There's no weapon formed against you that can prosper. When the enemy comes in like a flood, God will raise up a standard. You are made more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who died and gave himself for you. Right now, I just feel an urgency. If there's someone here today that's not saved, God wants to save you right now. Right now, just step out of your pew. Come down here and let me pray with you. We can take just a minute to let people be saved. 
If you need Jesus Christ in your life, this morning is your morning. God set you up for you to be saved. God has been speaking to you. God's been talking to you, and he's already starting revival. <laughs> I need some prayer warriors. Mike, would you come in, some of you guys? Is there another one this morning? This young man is holding a candle for his family, and now he's willing to come under the lordship of Jesus. Hallelujah. I need some prayer warriors right over here. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Praise the Lord. Now, can those of you that have been born again and have the light of the Lord give these people that have come a hand clap of praise for their courage? If you can bring the lights up now. I hope they can bring them up. Bring up the lights, please. change some things in our media. Bring up the house lights if you can. See the bright lights? The more candles we get, that'll happen automatically. The candle that is in your hand, they're yours to keep because if you'll go back to the tradition of the candles in Scripture, the symbolics, they would put them in their house as a light and a testimony that that household had been has belonged to God. So take that candle and put it in your house. Put it in your windowsill for everybody that goes by to see a lit candle representing your salvation. Now if you'll take the cup that we passed out to you for, for communion. If you'll tear that first part open and get the bread in your hand and get ready. This is just us having communion before the Lord. Those of us are saved, we're so thankful. 
the same night that Jesus was betrayed, dark, dark betrayal by Judas Iscariot, that same night he took bread. He took it in his hands. He looked at his disciples. He broke it. And he said, take and eat. For this bread represents my broken body that's been broken for you. So if you will take that bread and if you'll break it and eat it, you're signifying that you're honoring the broken body of Jesus Christ. The 39 stripes that cut through his skin, shed his blood. The pierceness that was on his brow by the thorns. You're recognizing the beatings, the scourgings, the spear in his side, his broken body, he done. He was wounded for your transgression. He was bruised for your iniquity. He became your substitute. He took the judgment of sin upon himself so that you would not have to have that happen. That's what communion's about. That's what the broken body's about. So as you eat that bread, thank him that he took your judgment for you. But not only did he take your judgment away, he took the cup. And he said, this cup represents the blood of the New Testament that has been shed for you. And then he said, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you do show my death until I come. That blood represents not only, not the, not only the, uh, or the, the bread not represents the judgment, but the blood represents the forgiveness and salvation. He didn't just take judgment off of you to where you could still be bound by sin. He gave you the blood to free you from your sin. So as you drink that blood, you are representing symbolically to him that you have trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away all your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So drink of the cup. Hallelujah. Now honor him and worship him a moment. Honor him and worship him a moment. of your son upon Calvary. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for liberty. Thank you that you have allowed us to have sonship with you. We give you glory. Thank you for deliverance. I pray that you set everybody under the sound of my voice free here today. In the name of Jesus Christ. And I give you the glory for it. In Christ's name. Amen. Come back tonight.